0: Thank you for choosing our podcast. If you'd like more information on how to get connected with our ministry or to financially partner with us, just visit us on the web at citylightsac.org. Today's message is from our series, Revealed in Red. What would you do if you only had hours to live? Where would you go? Who would you talk to? What would your last words be? Prepare your heart for an epic journey as we dive into Scripture to discover what happened during the final hours of Jesus' life. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, welcome to City Lights Church again. If I've not met you, my name is Peyton. I'm the lead pastor here at City Lights Church, and we are so excited that you're here with us this morning. We're so excited about what God's doing. And hey, I just want to give the band a little bit more love this morning. Jeez, Louise, killing it. Everybody sounded good. I heard some of y'all singing. You sounded pretty good, too. We might be having tryouts in a couple of weeks if you want to get up here with us. So, sound good. So glad to be here with you this morning. As Priscilla said, we are starting a new series called Revealed in Red uh, today. And I don't know if you guys know this, but in about three weeks, it is the Super Bowl Sunday of all churches, uh, for all churches. That is Easter Sunday. And so, uh, we've got a lot of great things planned. I want to encourage you to, if you don't follow us on social media, you're missing out and you're lame and not cool. So, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. We're on there. Uh, kind of communicating outside of Sunday. So keep up to date with us on that. And uh, this morning, I'm so excited because I think God's got a good word for us, for all of us. And here's what I want to say. If you're a first-time guest this morning and you're not really sure, like, you know, maybe you're skeptical about coming to a church that meets in an auditorium, that's okay. At a school, we're okay with that. If you're here this morning, you're not even really sure what you believe about Jesus, that's okay as well. If you're here this morning and you think you've been a Christian your whole life, what we believe is that the ground is level at the cross. There's no prerequisite to be a part of our church. Uh, We don't put terms and and limits or restrictions on Jesus because we don't think he does that to people, so we're not as well. So this is what I would say. If you're a first-time guest, you're skeptical, maybe you're seeking, uh, just relax. You're in a safe place where you're not going to be judged, and uh, we're going to love you the best we can, as much as you allow us. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, I think I've got a really, really strong word for everybody in here today. And, and I want you to hang with me, because typically what I do when I'm speaking is I'll take a, a set of scripture and just teach through those. It's kind of my style. But this morning, as we start this series, what we're going to be looking at is about the last 12 to 24 hours of Jesus' life and some really powerful statements that he made. And what are those implications for us in this postmodern culture in the 21st century? What does that mean to people that are here this morning? Right, because sometimes it's hard to read the Bible that was written thousands of years ago and make it relevant today. But we believe at City Lights that it's without error, that it's timeless, that it's perfectly true, it's good for teaching, rebuking, and it's still relevant to every person in here today, regardless of your background, regardless of how much money you have in your bank account, regardless of how faithful you attend church, it's relevant for for every person in here today. And so as we start part one, if you're taking notes, which I encourage you to take notes, we are talking about the statement where Jesus said, I am he, and what that means. And we'll get into that a little bit, but I want to set some stuff up for you before we get going. Because I have very prayerfully and thoughtfully planned out this message. What I have done is that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Basically, it's one story, but four different accounts, okay? And what I have done is, I, this one story that we're looking at this morning, I have went to all four Gospels and made it one story. Are you proud of me for being able to do that? I'm proud of my own self for being able to do that. It took a long time. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm not even going to be calling out the scriptures we're reading, and this is why, because we're all over the place this morning, but it's one story. And what I don't want you to do is get confused when I say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 22, 16, 18. I want you to pay attention to the story. It's one story from all different, uh, from all four Gospels, but it's one story. Particularly if you're just interested the story that uh, we're, we're getting this I am he from is in John chapter 18, 1 through 6. But what I've done is we're going to look at a couple verses in John 18, and then we're going we're to go to a little bit more substance of the story because John doesn't always mention exactly what's happening. It's not that it's not true. It's just he has a different account of it. I say this all the time. Anybody ever been to Neyland Stadium to watch a UT football game? Okay, some of you should not even claim to be from Tennessee if you've not been to a UT game. That's not cool, man. Not cool at all. You're probably Kentucky fans, and that's even more jacked up. Or Alabama fans. It's the same as being in UT uh, Neyland Stadium. Depending upon where you're sitting, you're watch. You're all watching one game. It's just a different view of the game. Does that make sense? Yes, Pastor. No, Pastor. Yes. All right. Good. So that's what's happening this morning. What I want to do though is set these next three weeks up before we get to Easter. I want to set up what's going on. So I need you to hang with me. I wrote this message believing that I'm going to be preaching to some smart people. Are you guys smart? This section feels like they are. This section, not so sure about it. Okay, so I'm preaching to you guys this morning because you need to be educated. Y'all are good and holy. Just hang out. So one week before Easter, which for us is in about two weeks, the week before is called Passion Week, okay? And what's happening there is it's, they're also celebrating Passover. Passover was what the Israelites celebrated for being uh, freed from the Egyptians, okay? Okay. So in Passion Week, this is the Sunday before Jesus rose from the grave, all right? What happens is, is on Sunday, he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What I mean by that is, this is the last time he's going to enter the city, as Jesus fully human. Now here's what's amazing about this, is there's two processions that are coming to Jerusalem that morning. There's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus is on the, the donkey's colt, and he represents meekness but God's kingdom. And then you've got the governor of Rome and all his soldiers coming in from the other side of the city and they represent power. And there's going to be this big clash in about five days. Now let me tell you something else that's cool. When Jesus was born, there were angels in heaven singing this, glory to God, and say this word with me, peace on earth. That's what the angels in heaven were singing about Jesus. Peace on earth, because the Savior Had come. Now listen, on Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, this is when they lay palm branches down. And the last time he enters Jerusalem, listen to what earthly men are singing. Say this with me Hosanna in the highest heaven. You're like, what's the big deal? It's interesting that at his birth, the angels in heaven were thanking God that he had come here. But on his last Sunday, as he entered, Earthly men were singing Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna just means praise be to the highest. But what's interesting is, is they don't know, but within about five days, he'll actually be going to heaven. And it's the very men that are singing Hosanna in the highest heaven that will send him to the cross. Can I hurt your feelings just for a second? Those of you who are just worshiping God, you may be the very person who curses his name this week. I appreciate y'all coming this morning. That's all I got. <laughs> it's interesting that we will often praise him out of one side of our mouth, but we'll curse him with the other. I just thought that was interesting. Here's what's happening on Monday. Monday is when Jesus cleanses the temple complex, when the, they're in there and they're, they're making basically a racket of his house and He goes in and flips the money tables over and kicks people out. And so we we told people in our volunteer service, when someone says, what would Jesus do to the church? Well, depending upon how we're acting, he might come in and turn some of y'all upside down and kick you out. Not me. I won't do that. That's what Jesus would do. Tuesday. For the first time publicly, Jesus's authority is challenged. Publicly. Up until then, it's been Jesus would heal somebody, and they would go off and talk talk about it, and and the the Pharisees or the the religious leaders would be like, hey, who did this? But here at Passover, now they begin to challenge him publicly in front of everybody. See, the, the tension's rising. Now Jesus has got about 72, 96 hours left to live. Wednesday. Interesting. There's no record of what happens on Wednesday. The Bible is silent. That door's not silent, though. Somebody's trying to bust in over there. The Bible is silent. And on, it's interesting that it's Wednesday. Uh, anybody ever been to a Wednesday night prayer service meeting? No? You didn't think that was funny? It worked in the volunteer service. <laughs> we feel like it's biblical at City Lights not to have a Wednesday night service because it's silent. And there's not, typically not a record of people being there. But that one didn't work. So my people back there taking notes just put a, X by that one. They didn't like that one. No, no record. But what we know for sure is this: is that Jesus is ministering to people, and the religious leaders are planning to kill him. Thursday. This is when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. This is the last meal that he would share with his disciples, where he talks about the bed. Uh, excuse me, the bread rep- represents the body, uh, the wine represents his blood. Now, what we're going to look at this morning, and I need you to hang with me is just a couple hours after this right here, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus goes off to what we call the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He takes some of his disciples with him. And at this point, he's got about, really at this point, honestly, he's got about 12 hours, 14, 16 hours before he goes to the cross. And I think what you're going to see this morning as, as we study the Scripture is that there is some very painstaking, heartbreaking language that our Savior uses. But it's important that we look at it in its totality because I want you to know that it's for you. Those of you who are here this morning and you don't really believe, it's for you as well. For those of you who have been here, or excuse me, you're here and you're a, you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for many years, you may need to be reminded of what your Savior did for you. So we're starting off in John chapter 18 as we look at Jesus saying, I am he. And it'll make sense at the end, good Lord willing. In John 17, Jesus just prayed a great prayer for all believers, and he says, excuse me, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered the grove of olive trees. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 2. It says, Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees, the leading priests and Pharisees had uh, excuse me, given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers. Many people believe this is five to 600 soldiers to go find one man. And temple guards to accompany him. So a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove or the garden. Now, many scholars believe this is about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And we know for sure it's night time because you don't need blazing torches and lanterns in the day to find somebody. So Jesus is already, and here's what you, you may not know this, and I encourage you to study it on your own, but by the time Jesus goes to the cross, it's not like he had nine hours of sleep that night and he was ready for it. What we're reading is late Thursday night, which we know for sure he's been up since that morning, and by the time he goes to the cross, it's very possible he was up for 24, 36, 40 hours. We don't know exactly. So that just that adds to the dynamic of what's happening here. We know for sure that it's night time. So when Jesus gets to this garden, next scripture... This is where we pick up. So he took Peter, James, and John with him. Remember, he had his disciples, but then he takes three inside that. And I think a good point there for us is we need to be careful who we allow in our inner circle to influence us. Right? I mean, what I'm saying is this for me, is there's certain people I'm going to allow to have access to me, but there's even a smaller circle of people I'm going to allow to influence me. Does that make sense? I think this is still good Listen, even if you're not a Christian, there's something that can be learned from this right here. Be careful who you let close to you. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and listen to the language here. He began to be deeply, deeply distressed and horrified. And we must remember, yeah, he was the savior of the world, but he was fully human as well. I love this. He says, then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. To the point of death, remain here and stay awake. Now, when this is studied, a lot of people often believe that that Jesus is saying, hey, I know that Judas is coming for me. Stay awake and, and watch for him, because some translations say stay alert. But what he's saying is, basically, the, the idea that it's suggestive of here is that we are called to share in Jesus' agony with him. The suffering that he was going through, we are to suffer with Christ as well. He's telling Peter, James, and John, hey, I need you to be here with me. spiritually. You may or may not feel this way, but it doesn't negate the truth. You need people in your life that can spiritually hang with you and be there for you and share in your troubles. Can I give you an example? I was 16 years old, and I had a friend named Brandon Phillips, and um, I was just going through some personal things back then as a 16-year-old, as all 16-year-olds do. You know, you think you have the world figured out, and and I'll never forget it, I drove up to his house that night, I had just a lot of things going on, and he was sitting out on the porch, he knew I was coming, and I got out of my car, I walked up to his porch, it's right up in Hunter's Trail, just right up by the interstate, and I just went and sat down on his porch and just started bawling. You know, I was just hurting. Y'all want to know what, it was going, what I was going through? It's not your business, and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I was hurting. I was hurting. And I remember Brandon was sitting there beside me, and I just looked over, and you know what's crazy? I'll never forget this. That's why I'm sharing this story with you. He was crying with me. Because he felt compassion for me, his friend. And that's what Jesus is talking about there. That we are to share with him the feelings, the agony that he's going through. That's specifically what he's talking about there. The same is true for us today. We are to share with Christ and what he's going through. Verse 35. It says, then he went a little farther because sometimes even though you allow people in your inner circle, sometimes they can't do everything for you that you need to do. Sometimes you've got to go just a little bit further by yourself to the Father. He went a little bit further and listen, he fell to the ground. You need to hang on to that. He fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour, that's not literally 60 minute time, just a segment of time, that the hour might pass from him. Verse 36. Hang to this. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. We need to understand that all things are not possible for us. All things are possible for God. Can I tell you something interesting as well that I had a thought just to share with you? Jesus here, this may be tricky, and maybe I should or should not say this, but actually what's happening here is they're still living under the Old Testament law, right? Because Jesus has not been crucified and resurrected yet. And Jesus speaking he says listen all things are possible for you talking to the father. Do you remember what Paul said later on? He said I can do all things through who? Christ. So here Jesus is saying all things are possible for you, God you can do it. But when Christ defeated death and rose victoriously, now we do all things through him. All things are possible for you. And he says, take this cup away from me. And basically what he's speaking here is, in the Old Testament, cup uh, the cup represented wrath and judgment because Jesus knew as he went to the cross that he who knew no sin became our sin. That's Jesus. And he knows what's coming. And he's saying, hey, if there's any other way we can do this, please let this pass from me. And then this is the prayer of every disciple it should be. "Is nevertheless not what I will but what you will. Now let me tell you something that I really think needs to be pointed out here. Jesus, the Son of God, I think this is a bold prayer for Jesus to pray to the Father, hey, I know you've got a plan for me, but if there's any other way it can happen, would you agree that's pretty, pretty bold for him to say, hey, please, if there's another way, let's make this happen. Let me give you a little like, hang to that story right there, and let me give you a little insight to like a preacher world. I would highly encourage you for your benefit and mine. If you ever had like something you feel like was pressing to say to me, try not to do it 30 minutes before the service and if you can wait till Monday, wait till Monday. Cuz most likely I may give you a response that I don't that I wish I hadn't and then like later that evening I'll be mad that I said that or I won't even remember that you talked to me because we get in such zone, we just get narrowed down and focused. So just a word of like if you have something that's just pressing, just if it can wait till Monday, let it wait. And I say that to say this A lot of times after service, when I get done speaking, I'll step out in the hallway, and I've got a little four-year-old daughter, and she'll come up to me and be like, hey, I need some money to go, you know, we're going to the store. Can I get something out of the, you know, vending machine? And I'm like, dude, I'm jacked up right now, okay? Don't be asking me for nothing. Don't ask me for nothing. And I'll, where's your mom at is what I'll ask her. But you know, what's, what's awesome about that is this. She comes to me with such boldness, because I'm her father. You feel me? That's what Jesus is doing here that day. And so what that means for you is we are able, those who are in Christ, to approach the throne with complete confidence and boldness. And what I'm wondering is, what kind of things are you asking the Father for this morning? What kind of big things are you asking God to do? Now, I I don't want to insult or being sensitive to your prayer life. But when was the last time you asked for God to do something really, really big in your life? See, God can handle whatever you bring to him. He has no problem answering or doing or he is more than capable to do whatever you ask. But where our part comes in is what Jesus said, hey, this is what I'm asking you to do, Father. If there's any way you can take this away from me, if there's any way you can take the cross away, if there's any way you can take the nails away, at least we forget he had family standing in front of the cross so it wasn't just the pain he was going to be going through. But nevertheless, not really what I want, but what you want. And so I think a key principle for us to learn here is that our desires may often have to die for God's plan to come alive. As we continue on, he's praying there. Listen to this. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. See, sometimes when things get bad, we pray less, but when Jesus felt the pressure, he prayed more. He prayed more, and listen, his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is a medical term called hematidrosis, and what's happening here is just, it's a physiological phenomenon. Around our brows and forehead, anybody got a big, beautiful forehead like me? My son does, bless his heart. We have sweat glands. Anybody sweat profusely from right here? I do. It's terrible. I mean, I love warm weather, but, and especially, like, if I get nervous up here, I'm going to go and give you all a hand. If I ever get like the preacher sweat nervous, it starts coming from right here. So if you see me, like right now I'm hot because I'm wearing this jacket, but most of the time that's where I sweat. But anyway, that's just so we know each other. We have sweat glands. And what's happening here is under great amount of stress and anxiety, and I'm not talking about like stress, like, hey, where should we go for dinner? These jeans make me look good. How's this shirt fit on me? I'm talking great amount of stress and stress and anguish, anxiety. What happens is uh, those, are, those vessels, they begin to dilate. And what happens as, is as we begin to sweat, those glands begin to open, and literally the blood begins to ooze out of them. Now, this is what I think is neat as well. Hang with me for a moment. Luke was not an original disciple of Jesus. So it's more than fair to assume that he was not there in the garden that day. In fact, if you, Luke, he is basically an investigator writing. If you read Luke chapter 1, he says he's writing his book to a man named Theophilus. And he said, hey, I've carefully studied everything. Basically, you can trust what I'm writing. But here's what, here's what else is interesting. is Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. This is a medical condition. Did you know out of the four Gospels, Luke's the only one to mention this? It would have caught his interest. Right? Being a doctor. Here's what else is neat about this story, I feel like. We've been reading a little bit from Mark as well. Mark was not the original disciple. And we believe that Mark got his account of what happened through the disciple Peter. So try to hang with me on this. Remember, it's Peter, James, and John. They're in the garden. And it says Jesus went a little bit further. And so maybe, maybe not. He's down on his knees. I always just, I don't know. You know, maybe he's down on his knees or maybe he's he's down like this, or he's like this, and you know, I would imagine that his breathing is heavy. Great anguish. To the point that his sweat began to force blood to come out. It says it was falling to the ground. It doesn't say it was oozing. It was falling. So, maybe his face was like this. And then you got Peter, James, and John. They're over here. Remember, he's telling them to stay awake, stay awake. And so they're over here. They're like leaning up against each other, and they're praying, and you know, Lord, we knows what's going on, but we're praying, I hope this, you know, they're probably thinking about other things because they don't know that Jesus is fixing to go to the cross and be crucified as the savior of the world. So they're just saying, hey, is this, you know, how much more time we have left? Getting kind of hungry, we've been up here a while. And maybe, and maybe Peter looks over and he sees Jesus. And he sees the sweat, it says falling, falling. Now fast forward in time. Oh, he's, he's talking to Mark and Luke and he's like hey I'd love to have been in the room when, when Peter's telling the story because remember Mark wasn't there Luke wasn't there could you imagine what it had have been like for Peter to have seen that and then years later tell that story can I tell you why so I think that Jesus was under straight, great um, anxiety and stress no doubt he knew the physical elements that were coming no doubt he knew that the, the nails were coming the pain was coming and just in case you don't know, crucifixion is not a beautiful thing. In fact, it's something that would, you would be cursed by God. And it wasn't the nails that killed him. And let's just be totally real. It was Jesus who gave up his life that day. But what happens is as they're hanging there, the weight of their own body begins to press on their lungs, and they actually they suffocate to death is what happens. But this is why when Jesus is there in anguish, he says he's deeply distressed, he's horrified, blood begins to fall, the hematidrosis. It's not because he knows the pain that's coming. Totally. Do you remember when Jesus is on the cross and right before he, he says it is finished, before you know he, he gives his life, he, he looks to heaven and says, Father, why have you forsaken me? You remember. For the first time in eternity, Jesus is separated from the Father. So when Jesus is here in anguish and the blood's falling, it's not necessarily because he fears the nails that are going through his hands, but he knows that he's fixing to be separated from the Father. How can that be, Pastor? It's really simple. Because of humanity, blame it on Adam and Eve if you'd like, sin has entered the world. And there had to be a sacrifice for that, so that's why you read in the Old Testament that they had to sacrifice lambs. Jesus was the perfect lamb, but within that, as Jesus took our wrath and judgment on the cross, and God's holiness and His righteousness and His just in His love, that the moment that Jesus took that on, He became sin, who knew no sins. What the Bible said, and in His holiness, God could not look at the Son. That moment, He became that. And so Jesus says, "Why have you forsaken me?" It gives me cold chills. For the first time in eternity, they're separated for that moment. And so maybe that's why Jesus is deeply horrified. And I want to ask you something this morning. How do you feel when your behavior separate you from the Father? Are you scared that you'll miss out on the blessing? Are you fearful of missing out on him? Let's continue. After he's bleeding, he tells his disciples, hey, keep hanging with me. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. There was a large mob with swords and clubs. It uh, was with him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Keep going. His betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, the one I kiss. He's the one. Arrest him. Verse 49. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Interesting. Which basically means teacher, not greetings, Jesus. Not greeting the one who I followed for three years and you've given everything to teach me. Greetings, Rabbi. I think another good question is, What do you call Jesus? Jesus. Is he a God? Is he your God? Is he the God? Is he Savior? Does anybody know him as redeemer in here this morning? Does anybody? Come on. Yeah, I see a couple back. Anybody know him as forgiver of sins? So he went right up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Hey, you aren't going to believe this, but I just looked at the clock. I'm doing really good on time, and we're going we're to finish on time, so hang with me, okay? Those of you who get antsy about ending, I just looked at it. We're good. I can't believe it. Here's what's interesting about this. There's a man named Josephus. Anybody pregnant with a baby boy looking for names? There's a man named Josephus. He's a first century writer. He's not in the Bible. But he mentions that year. He's a very trusted author. He was a Christ follower, a Christian, excuse me. And he mentions this year during Passover, there were 250,000 lambs slain. 250,000. Now, during this time, one lamb would have been slain for each household. Josephus suggests that traditional house size back then could have been up to seven, eight, nine people. And let's shoot high for the sake of math, because I'm not good at it. But if there was 250,000 lambs slain per household, and each house had 10, that means that nearly 2.5 million people would have been at Passover that year. Now maybe, if there was that amount of people there, that's why Judas said, hey, I know there's a lot of people here, but I'm going to go up and directly kiss the one who you need to get. What's interesting is that Judas would go up and kiss the perfect lamb who would be slain for our sins. Let's keep the story rolling. So at this moment, this is interesting because there's almost a contradiction here in this scripture, okay? I want you to hang with me. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen. So it's in this moment, it was that mark of the kiss that now he knows I'm going to be separated, I'm going to be taking on, there is no other way. It is God's will that it happened this way. He fully, fully realized. He was not tricked. He was not tricked. He fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he, I love this right here. He stepped forward. He did not cower back. He did not feel the heat and hide behind the crowd. It says he stepped forward. I think what's interesting about that is that here we see not only was he God and fully human, but Jesus was a man who knew God's plan and was ready to take it on. He stepped forward. What I want you to think about when you, when you see that is that, Christy, he stepped towards you. David, he stepped towards you. He stepped towards you. That's so good, right? He didn't cower. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Here's where the contradiction is, because he fully realizes everything, but yet it says, who are you looking for? Do you know that God will often do things in our life, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to know what's fixing to happen? Like, are you sure you're ready for this? Are you sure this is what you want? Because he fully realized, so it really doesn't make sense that he would ask that other than there has to be an ulterior motive here. Jesus knows. And look what happens. They say, Jesus the Nazarene, not Jesus Christ, not Jesus the Savior, not our healer, not our redeemer. Jesus the Nazarene, it's an insult. He's just that carpenter son from Nazarene, that's what they say. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, and look, he says, I am he, revealed in red, what is the revelation here? Hang tight. Jesus said, "Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him." Verse six. As Jesus said, "I am He." They all listen. They all, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Media team out there, take me back to Mark fourteen thirty five. If you guys are with me, say, "Come on, come on." Almost done. Yeah, come on. Hang with me. Listen, then he went a little bit further because, again, sometimes we have to go on our own to seek our relationship with Jesus. You can't count on the preacher to do it for you. Then he went a little further, and listen, he, he fell to the ground because Jesus is praying before the Father. And listen, it says he fell. He did not stumble. I mean, he just he fell. He fell before the Father. Take me back to John 18, 6. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. See, when you find yourself before the presence of God, you cannot do but one thing and fall before him. Somebody should have shouted right then besides me. When you find yourself before the living God, you cannot do but one thing, and that is to fall before your knees, Kim. You can resist it. And they did, listen, does it say they fell forward? They drew back the glory of God. They could not contain it. It's so good, right? That the glory was there. Listen, even in their impure motive to harm him, even when you come to church for the wrong reason, God's glory can still show up and fall on your life. Now, you may not fall back, but you may sit back. happening here in this moment is when Jesus says I am he it's coming from Exodus chapter 3 which is not on the screen but in the Old Testament when when God tells Moses a man named Moses hey you're going to go free my people from the Egyptians and Moses has got this speech impediment he's insecure he doesn't know how it's going to happen and he says what should I tell the people what should I tell them and God says tell them that I am sent you So in the original language in Jesus, when he says, I am he, he's saying, I am. And what did they do? They fell back because of the glory of God. When Jesus was in the garden with the Father, he fell to the ground to worship. When the men were with Jesus in the garden, they fell down to the ground. I guess I'm wondering this morning if some of you should stop standing and just fall down and give it to him. You see, when Jesus said, I am he, he said, I found, you're, I found, I found the answer to what you need. You have found it in me. I really wish you'd just stand on your feet right now for a second. I want to ask you something. See, Jesus stepped forward so he could be found, and I just want to know, has anybody found that love this morning? Has anybody found the love from the Father? if you found it, he wants to make himself available to you today.